Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. Helen Valborg was born in California, but always felt a stronger tie to the ancient world than to the culture she grew up in. After a divorce, she was able to go to Greece and live among descendants of the ancient Spartan warriors she had dreamed of as a child. She taught anthropology for 30 years, is a former Feather River College instructor and Plumas County resident. Helen Valborg has written now a memoir, Odyssey to My Daughter. Helen Valborg, welcome. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Well, your story is not a typical uh, young girl growing up when you did, and this was some time ago. And people might wonder, well, uh, why didn't why did she uh, uh, at a young age? How old were you when you went to Greece, for example? Well, I would have been about twenty four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's pretty young to be venturing out on your own. But you also explain your relationship to your mother and dad, and that played a role in it. So I would like you, if you don't mind, like you to read the section in your book where you tell us about your mother. Yeah. My mother was unhappy in her marriage. She had been one of 13 children raised mostly by their older sister when the family came to America. They worked a section of land in Minnesota, and she had been very young when her mother died. I suspected that might have been why it was not natural for her to play the role of mother to a daughter. She did, however, enjoy telling my brother and me about how many miles she and her siblings used to slog through the blizzards to get to school in the winter. Our family did not discuss much of its history, but I ferreted out a couple of stories that I held close to my heart. My mother had driven a motorcycle at one point and had crawled up the face of Glacier Point in Yosemite before meeting my father. I felt enormously proud of her daring, but as I grew older, it was overshadowed by the unhappiness in our home and her own gradual emotional withdrawal. An ever-widening disconnect grew between my mother and me. We never embraced, nor can I remember moments of intimate affection. I sometimes express the unconscious pain this caused in dissociation and outbursts once becoming hysterical when a friend's dog ate the wood fiber flowers my mother had attached to my straw basket. She was more a mystery than a model to me. And after her death, I did not find examples of strong, independent, or loving women who might have taken her place or supplanted the masculine warrior I had dreamed of being. This is my guest, anthropologist and author, Helen Valborg, and she's reading from her book, Odyssey to My Daughter, and she uh, recounts her uh, story, her mother's story, and (laughs) you know what? It's almost a cliche, because when I was growing up, my dad trapped through the snow to get to school when he was a kid, (laughs) and I've forgotten how, how how much distance there was, but he walked through the snow to go to school. But your mother was uh, more of an adventurer than women of her time. And uh, so that, that must have been inspiring, even though it wasn't, your mother wasn't exactly a role model for you in most ways. Would that be true? It's true. Um, it's interesting. She was inspiring to me, and it was the things that were unusual, the kind of courage that it took to get up on a motorcycle and take off. And also, you know, climbing in the mountains, going off by herself, doing things like shinnying up the face of Glacier Point. I mean, things like that, she did. And I saw her doing some of those things. And that I respected. I wanted to be like that. But there was some whole area 
in our relationship that was pretty much a void. She, she wasn't there. Mm-hmm. I think maybe it was difficult. Maybe growing up on a farm, they came from Norway, and they were farmers. They had a section of land. It was hard work. And maybe just growing up like weeds out in the prairie without a mother, she... Because her mother died when she was young. She was very small when her mother died. Yeah, she was seven years old. So your mother lost her own mother, Mm -hmm. died at a Mm -hmm. young age. So the mothering wasn't there. And I never thought of this at all until I actually started trying to pull together these Mm -hmm. threads that had to do with my life. And I started thinking, you know, she didn't have a model. Yeah. She never had that. She didn't know how to pass it on because I began to experience the same thing when I had my daughter. I was in the same kind of position where I didn't, I didn't feel naturally mm-hmm. like, oh, this is me. And mm-hmm. Like some women do. That's the role they see for that's themselves. It. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's the whole thing. Well, you, um, your mother then died. And you had a brother, and you and your brother both left home. And uh, and what did he do? How did he leave home? He went into the Navy, what they called the Kitty Cruise in those days. He was 17. And he made four voyages across the Pacific to Japan and had lots of crazy adventures in Japan and became interested in Buddhism. He went to see the big Daibutsu in Kamakura, and something flashed. He became interested in Asian thought at that point, which I eventually, in my own way, became interested in also. But we were close. When he had a locker on board the destroyer, he was on what they call a tin can. It was an old one. It had seen time in the Second World War. And they were out there floundering around in these big typhoons. He had a locker down with the, you know, the bowels of the ship. And most of the guys would have pictures of movie stars or somebody. Their girlfriend. Their girlfriend. Or <laughs> and he had my picture. That was, oh, sweet. that was the big thing. We were as close as could be. We kind of backed each other. Mm-hmm. Const- Unlike, your mother didn't always support you. You didn't no. feel supported by your mother. No. Well, um, you see, you say in your book, it seemed that both my brother and I raised ourselves in our imaginations, absorbed in nature but only tangentially connected to the culture from which we had sprung. Surely, aside from him, there was no one with whom I could share my visions. He had been my sole ally and now would leave to follow the separate thread of his own life. So you eventually, you said, well, I'll get married. Yeah? (laughs) Kind of something like that. Well, why don't you read your words that you wrote about that? Okay. Eventually, I took a chance on marriage, thinking I might find direction and stability. The tomboy I had been had, oops, skipped a page, had attempt, was attempting to relocate herself as a woman. The lost warrior was grasping for ballast, a magical transformation into a new feminine me. It was a mistake. I didn't fit. I was not one of the girls, the perfect homemaker or the dutiful wife. I overheard my husband's relatives say, oh, she'll settle down. She'll learn to be a good wife. But I saw that possibility as entrapment, a lure into a box canyon. The union lasted only a couple of years, but despite my unhappiness, it brought me the unexpected blessing of a remarkable happy daughter. With her arrival, I experienced my first intimations of motherhood, of being a woman. She was a laughing child, delighting in the tiny diversions inherent in my unorthodox ways of caring for her. 
After separating from her father, when it was just the two of us, she would hunker on my back in a knapsack, fascinated by the patterns of light and shadow cast by the trees growing in the hills where we foraged for firewood. She sat in her car seat in my old jalopy, serenely waiting while I measured backyards for landscape plans and then played with pencils while I drafted designs when we got home. This is my guest, Helen Valborg, and she lives in California now, but in Northern California. She was growing up in Southern California, and um, she had these ideas about wanting to be a part of an ancient culture. And as I mentioned, you went to Greece, but people say, well, how did you... How did you manage that? How did you? And it wasn't a city like Athens. You went to a little tiny village, and people might wonder, well, uh, how did? How, what was that connection? So, uh, would you? I would ask, like you to read, um, because you decided you would uh, go to college, and so would you start reading there, where you say, in addition to. In addition to allotted visitations with my daughter and working as a car hop at Bob's Big Boy, I started attending college. I joined the Foreign Students Club where I met a young Greek student who invited me to a symposium. The invitation stopped me in my tracks. It was 1961. And despite all that had shaken my confidence in previous months, I actually thought I was being singled out to participate in a philosophical discussion <laughs> of Plato's symposium. The prospect of a real debate following Socratic methods of dialogue was unexpected and exciting. I felt privileged it soon became clear, however, that I had simply been invited to a party offering Greek food and music, and Takis, the student inviting me, was not in that the least— That was his name, by the way, excuse me. It that was, was the Takis. Name, Takis. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He was not the least interested in Plato. However, the invitation led to the beginning of a friendship through which I could explore the kinship I felt with ancient Greece on a deeper and renewed level. My guest is anthropologist Helen Valborg, who has written a memoir, Odyssey to My Daughter. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Helen Valborg. The cover of your book, the title Odyssey to My Daughter, has looks very Greek, the artwork. And yeah. who is that on the cover of your book? Well, it's a Greek warrior, but it's a woman. And she is standing, as it were, on the ocean with her spear in her hand. It's very stylized. It's a silhouette. She's looking over mm -hmm. her shoulder. Yes, very stylized as though you were looking at an ancient amphora or a plate or something like that. Beautiful design. And she's just 
got that noble, I would like to think of myself that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's got that noble kind of profile that is so Greek, but she's ready for war. Yes. She's definitely yes. ready for whatever comes. Well, as you get ready to go to Greece, I was wondering, well, Helen, did you speak any Greek? Did you even read Greek? How did you prepare to go to Greece? Well, yeah, I think... Besides the letter you take, the letter from Takis. Right. From from Takis, I got a little note saying, anyone who reads this... It wasn't exactly a letter, typed up letter. It was just a little piece of paper. It was written on a scrap of paper, and it was written in pencil. It says, anyone who sees this, if you would please show this young woman the village of Kita, show her how to get there, which is ridiculous because here's the whole of Greece, and Kita is going to be a tiny village in a very, very remote peninsula. In fact, in you include a map in your book because we yeah. aren't familiar with this part of Greece. Right. I mean, if we go to Greece, we go to Athens or some yeah. of the more or touristy some of the touristy islands. places, yeah. yeah. Or the islands, like you say you've been to Crete. Crete is gorgeous. And, it of is. course, to see, you know, all of those ancient ruins is a great privilege. But this was this tiny little note, and I thought, well, um, here I go. I'm, I'm going to go, and I'm going to find these ancient descendants of Spartans, as they Warriors. were supposed to be. Takis had told me stories about his village, and I was very intrigued. And having had a bit of a background in anthropology at that time, going to college, I was very, very ready to go live in some kind of extremely remote and also in fact it was so remote culture. they didn't have plumbing or electricity oh none and none. i was thinking now i when i was younger i didn't mind camping and roughing it but uh doing with a lot of electricity that's kind of doable but without running water that's no plumbing nothing yeah. and there were no radios there were n- nothing to plug into mm-hmm. there were no battery no batteries. run yeah. radios there was if you wanted music in the village, you sang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or somebody might play a flute. That was it. If you wanted to communicate, um, you would stand on the hillside, in the rocky hillside surrounding Kita, the village, and you would holler. And you'd holler in such a way and at such a pitch that it would travel down the mountainside. And they called it the Maniatiki Telefono. <laughs> so it's the, the system of communication that goes back to smoke signals, practically. And a lot of the ways of living involved a great deal of physical labor because you draw your water from a cistern and you plow your field with mules or with cows, whatever you might happen to have. You do it all by hand. Everything, every step of the way is done by hand. But I didn't know that when I took off. And I hadn't taken the trouble to try and learn Greek. Well, that's what I was wondering, too, when you were talking about this method of communication. And I'm wondering, when you arrive in the town, how much Greek could you understand when you uh, uh, got there to this little tiny village? It, It wasn't easy getting there because they didn't have public transportation like you could just hop right. on a cab and, and go up to this little village. Right. There was um, just a smattering of words that I picked up because I did arrive by train through Yugoslavia down into northern Greece and then finally to Athens. And I stayed in Athens and picked up some basic words to get around and finally um, took a... what proved to be a very modern kind of bus. It was a Volvo, and it was very flashy-looking. And we took off through into the Peloponnese and then going down into the southern Peloponnese to the old city of Sparta, we switched to a local bus, and that's when things began to change (laughs) very rapidly. And people changed. It was like the sophistication of some of the clothing 
and suitcases and things like that that had to do with people who were living around the Athenian area, um, they disappeared, and all of a sudden you're looking at people in very, very simple homespun or cast-off clothing, and you're looking at bundles filled with different kinds of vegetables and even animals. And you're on a local bus, and going into these mountains south of Sparta, it began to be a feeling of going into a very, very different land, very mm-hmm. rocky, all rocks everywhere. And yeah, then you by mentioned the, t- the stones yeah. played a big role in your life there. It's huge, and, and that brought up... Um, a lot of issues that had to do with how you work and what you build everything of. Everything was built of stone. Everything, beehives were built of stone. And there was uh, very little wood that was used uh, except for firewood, and that was prunings from the olive trees because they had the olive groves, and that was the main kind of economic basis for their life down there. But well, I think you even helped out with uh, harvesting the olives. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I remember on Crete, they'd put out a cloth under the olive trees. And so there they had this burlap, burlap tarp yeah. that, for the olives to fall on. Exactly. And to, to these trees were small because the, the soil was not lush. It was rocky incredible amount of minerals in that soil. So it produced olives that were to die for. They were so good, and the olive oil was so good, which I just love to this day. I'd love to have some of that (laughs) green, fresh olive oil. But And and you could make soap with olive oil. I mean, they had to make everything. Everything. You wash your hair with olive oil soap, and you use it for all of the cooking, anything that needs to be lubricated, whatever. It's all from the trees. And then the the branches from the trees, when you prune them every year, that's your fuel for the year. Well, you know, the olives didn't surprise me because I expect that from Greece. But what I didn't, what kind of was surprising was the role that wheat played. And just to make flour was such a labor-intensive process. Mm-hmm. So, what did, did did that surprise you? Well, it it I sat one day and went through this whole thing in my head and tried to work it out on paper as well, uh, and then checked it out later. Uh, I figured it was about one hour producing bread with our combines in the field. In this country, in America, compared to 100 hours from actually prepping the ground, plowing it, and then sowing, and getting everything right according to rains, because there's no irrigation at all, and then you go through the whole process of letting that wheat grow. It's winter wheat, and you're going to start you know, cutting it, and all that's done with sickles, women with sickles. And you have photographs in your book. So I yeah. really, I looked at all the photographs very yeah. carefully. Thank you for including all the photographs. They're black and white, but mm-hmm. it helps us to uh, see all this in our imagination. And I begin to appreciate, too, why there's so many phrases like bread uh, being the staff of life. And I realize, yeah, bread, wheat played such a role still when you were there yeah, in Greece. Yeah, it's huge. And cutting a, a loaf of bread fresh from the forno, these big stone fornos where they would bake the bread, and you'd take the loaf, and usually if, it, if the father of the family, the head of the family was there, he would do it, hold the loaf, and then you make the sign of the cross over the loaf, before cutting it, and then you cut it, and it is blessed. The whole thing is a blessed process, and you realize, you know, it's like going right back to Demeter, the goddess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of references to Greek gods and goddesses Mm -hmm. in your book, so Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that. Oh, good. (laughs) Wonderful. Because um, that I don't think we realize how this culture has uh, become a part of our own culture that we may not recognize. 
It is. It's very much. I think most people would understand, oh, there's Demeter. She's the goddess. She lost her daughter. Well, that's a theme that's very basic to the book. Yes. She lost her daughter. Persephone was taken, kidnapped, taken down into the underworld. And then she raged and looked for her daughter and raged at the gods. All her brothers were gods. And she told them, if you do not give me back my daughter, because they knew that they had conspired together to allow Hades to take her into the underworld. If you don't give me back my daughter, I will burn the wheat around the globe. All of the harvests I will torch. And that will be the end of food for people as we know it. And she got her away because Persephone, they said, okay, we'll release her for half of the year. And that's the half of the year when the wheat is actually growing and showing itself and turning into this grass that has these wonderful, fruitful heads at the top that can be cut and made into bread. And it makes, I think, those of us who read this realize how far removed we are from our food and how it's prepared. And we see this little cellophane-wrapped package that we get in the grocery store. Right. Let me remind listeners that my guest is Helen Valborg. She is a an anthropologist. She's written a memoir, Odyssey to My Daughter. And she's telling us about the time that uh, you spent in uh, Greece in this tiny little village. And you learned about the harvesting of olives and the process of making bread from the very start. You got a photograph of women and this is huge amount of dough that she's kneading. But there's also a, a, a dark leafy green that we're not familiar with. We know about spinach. And so our, our uh, Greek food, we have spinach in it. But what did you learn uh, about a, um, a, a wild greens? Well, they're, they're mo mostly on the mountain. So you actually have to walk up the mountains to find the best greens. And <clears throat> people don't do that all the time because uh, they're busy with the usual chores. It's either the harvesting of the olives or the harvesting of the wheat or making various things, repairing tools, all, all of that. It's, it's a very busy life. There's a lot of physical work that goes on, especially involving the women. But there's the occasion when you can take off. And I was able to go up the mountain several times with mostly younger women, but sometimes older women. The women who would be what we would call old, I suppose, or getting... I, maybe in California, we don't think of old anymore. <laughs> but um, it would be women in their 70s and late 70s going up into their 80s. They would hitch up their skirts and hike up the mountains on these very rocky trails and look for greens. And I would go with them when I could. And um, there was... Um, Different types of greens. One day we went and I, I was able to identify 17 different types of wild greens. And the best ones are growing right in the rocks. And they draw all the minerals out of the soil. And they're, they're just so good. They are so good. And you bundle them all up, put them in your apron, put them in a sack on your back, and carry them home to the village, and then they're going to be cooked, and they'll be cooked in olive oil. Everything is cooked in olive oil. But we made spanakopitas, and they were not the dainty little spanakopitas <laughs> that, that we you get would here in find. the United States. <laughs> yeah. No, they were pretty, you know, the dough is that flaky kind of dough. It's uh, just dough, and it's all kind of heavy because of the oil. But, you know, I got used to that taste in no time at all. And after that, I thought I used to have dreams about it <laughs> oh. through all the years since being in Mani and being in the village. Um, well, just there, the taste. There's another expedition you went on that 
I think people would be surprised. Reader would say, what, salt? Yeah, that was interesting. That was an expedition with Marika, and um, she thought it would be uh, time to go and get salt. So we walked, it took us uh, many hours, half a day, to walk through, again, nothing but rocks on these rocky pathways that would go past villages some distance away, some of them. And we headed down to uh, the Gulf of uh, Kalamata. Oh, now there's a word that's familiar with us olive lovers, Kalamata. Kalamata. (laughs) And the olive trees are Kalamata, (laughs) Kalamata olives. But we went to, it's right on the Gulf of Messenia is this whole area yeah, because I studied maps when I was reading your book, because you have a little map for us, mm-hmm. smaller, but I got maps that were larger so I could see so more could of the really surrounding area. Oh, and yeah. you could see that little, um, kind of like a, a little peninsula sticking out into the Bay of Mezopo, and it's uh, flat. It looks like the handle of a frying pan, and at the end of it is a kind of raised area where there's an old very old Frankian fort made by the the Franks or Venetians, and that goes back hundreds of years. It's just a ruin that's out at the end of the frying pan. But along the handle of the frying pan, you're almost at sea level, and there's all this salt that comes up, and there's these pans that are like circular areas with stones around them, of course, and then little sections. And when the sea comes up during high tide, it leaves all this salt there, and you can go and you gather. That's the source of salt for everybody in the villages. Now, uh, sorry, since we were mentioning the geography, um, I understand that this little peninsula where you were, the southernmost point in that little peninsula, is also the southernmost point of continental Europe, is it not? Oh, that's interesting. I didn't mm. know that. I think that's the case. So I yeah. think people who uh, are interested in Greece would like to uh, take a look at uh, a map. It's it's not as neat like France is this little hexagon, but uh, Greece is much more complicated geographically, I find. It is. So there you are. Um, you, I've been asking you about these different exhibitions you went on, but also I found interesting... The role of women. Now, this was some time ago. You went over in the early 60s. But uh, what did you, for example, were marriages arranged for young girls? Yes, all of them were arranged. They were. And that involved a lot of kind of, um, it involved go-betweens, proxeneos. Um, These were people that were like detectives, and they knew the family lines very well. Everyone knew who was who in terms of what lineage they belonged to in what clan. And the clans were well known in their history for people who are industrious, people who are noble, people who are honest, people who are not honest, people who have a bad reputation, whatever. Everybody knows all of that. But the proxeneo would do all the detective work concentrating on that particular nuclear family and what their history was and what they had to offer in marriage. And they would look at the young woman, and of course she had to be a virgin. She had to be somebody who had been very carefully and very strictly raised and could do all the work, who knew all of the things that went into the kind of work that could produce a family, feed the family, clothe the family, do everything that was needed. And that's a lot of skill, tremendous amount of skill. And these young women, they knew it. They got it from their mothers. They got it from their sisters. The bond between mothers and daughters was amazingly strong, and it had to do with work. And it had to do with skills and trusting that somebody's going to take those skills and they're going to do the right thing. You might with need them. to take care of goats. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they're a trip in themselves. After a break, I'll be back with author Helen Valborg. 
who's written Odyssey to My Daughter. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wiegman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with Helen Valborg, who's written a memoir about her time in Greece and her daughter. The title of the memoir is Odyssey to My Daughter. Now, I want to ask you about a woman named Angela. Yes. Because she had some special talents, and, and you could probably sit back and say, yeah, well, that's nice. She has these prophetic dreams. That's nice. But then you had a headache. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I did. Um, Angela could take away the effects of the evil eye. And the evil eye that I heard of when I first came to Athens, first came to Greece, was in the newspaper. There had been a case in the newspaper of somebody who was a very young, dashing man who had been dancing in a taverna, and he danced very well, and he got the evil eye. And people thought that he got the evil eye because he was so handsome that other people were jealous of him. And so he went home, and he became sick. And within just a very couple of days, he actually died, and there was no medical reason for his death. So in the newspaper in Athens, which I read in English at the time, um, was this description of how this young man had died from the evil eye. And that was my first introduction to the fact that this this was taken seriously. Belief that it was ubiquitous. Everybody believed in it. And when I went to Kita, when I was living in the village, Um, I came to know that Angela was somebody who could help people. She had prophetic dreams, and everyone knew this, and it had been passed down through the women in her family. She knew things that were going to happen before they happened, but she could also go through this process of taking away whatever it was It might be a severe headache. It might be some kind of illness, something like a catastrophe happening to someone. Um, They fell down off of something and were, you know, disabled. Anything like that would be seen possibly as the result of the evil eye. And they would go to her, and they would carry with them something that went around part of their body, like something a that had belonged to them. That she uh, or would a belt. want them to bring. She mm-hmm. would ask them to bring that with them, and they would go into this special room that she had. Because I lived with Angela and her two daughters for a while, and we became very close. And she would allow me to go into the room, and she would sit on a straight back, hand hewn chair. <laughs> And she'd sit the person who was suffering to her right, and she would start going into this kind of ritual, and she she never let me hear it. And so I don't know the words, but I would hear her voice. And she would take the item that they had brought, the belt or whatever, and she would start passing it underneath her knee and she'd pass it around under her knee, and then she would begin to go into a trance. 
And as she went into a trance, she would begin to slump. And she started to look very exhausted. It didn't take very long before she was looking very exhausted. And as she did this, the person sitting to her right, the color would start coming back into their face. They would start moving around like they were, you know, ready to go. Like they were, um, you know, free of whatever it is that had hurt them, that was bothering them. And this happened to me, and I thought, because I was still skeptical. You're coming from an well, outside yeah, world. this sounds very <laughs> hocus-pocus, like, oh, these people are still <laughs> believing this stuff that we, we discounted long ago, and I'm in my culture from the States. Yeah, that's right. But when you had a headache... I had a headache that was enough to knock you out. It was like a blinding and it was the kind of headache where you lose your willpower you're just smashed by it and I went to her and it's just like I thought you know I'm skeptical but forget that I'm going I'm <laughs> if going you're hurting to bad enough then <laughs> exactly. you'll say yeah whatever you say Angela you say it yeah uh, you're willing to do because you were in such pain yeah and she she took it away, and it was fast. It happened very quickly. And I was relieved of this. It was gone. And I knew little bits and pieces from what she said. And then later I read about such things as well, that there's something about you need to be on the right-hand side because this evil goes away, but it has to be drawn to the left. And then it's dispersed through this person who has the ability to take this away from you, to draw it out and disperse it. But in the process, they're exhausting themselves. So it was a, kind of a, a sacrificial thing that she was doing. She was helping people and using a lot of her energy in the process. But that's the kind of person she was. She was amazing with her daughters. That was probably the biggest lesson I had in my life of how to be a mother, what a mother really is. It was um, just amazing. My guest is anthropologist Helen Valborg, and she has written a memoir, Odyssey to My Daughter. So getting back to your daughter, she's in the United States. What, she's about five years old? or Well, she was very young when I left. Uh, she'd just turned five. She was ready to go to school. And she, my um, divorce had been final for some time. She had been living with me for some time. But... I lost custody of her, and this was probably one of the really hard things that happened early in my life. I failed. I failed um, at marriage. I failed at motherhood. The little beginnings of feeling like a mother and so on were... Um, I didn't have enough confidence in it, and uh, my former husband and his mother and some of his friends um, did a lot to try and undermine that confidence, and I ended up in a courtroom uh, where I actually lost her custody. Yeah, you mentioned that early in the book, yeah. sitting in that courtroom. Yeah. 1960 is when That's that right. was. Yeah. Which reminds me, there's a scene in your book of what happened in November of here you are and you're kind of removed from uh, news from the United States, but they told you about the assassination of President Kennedy. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So that kind of helps us to uh, locate your story in time and what was going on mm -hmm. in the rest of the world. But you're you're happy there. You're not eager to come back to California, Helen. <laughs> so why did you leave this place that you were so happy in? Yeah, 
I didn't want to. And I was trying to figure out how I could stay. And there was um, a couple of things that happened. I had been living with the parents of the of Takis, the young man that I had met at college. At college. And um, so I was fine. They, they were looking out for me. But there was a kind of um, ambiguity in the whole situation. I didn't know enough to understand whether they thought I was a potential daughter-in-law or whether they knew anything about my past. Um, they certainly did not know that I had been married they did not know that I had been divorced. They didn't know that I wasn't a virgin. They didn't know I had a daughter and that I had left my daughter in California and was warbling around the world by myself. They didn't know any of those things. They were trying to put things together because, of course, they weren't, they weren't stupid, but... Um, they didn't have enough information, and I wasn't sure how much information they were getting from their son, who was in California, and who knew these things. But you do uh, leave Greece. Your dad uh, notifies you he's not doing well, mm -hmm. and so you kind of reluctantly, but you decide, okay, it's time to go back to California. Now, uh, it's not easy doing that. I mean, it's a long trip. You take public transportation. But finally, you arrived in Southern California where your dad lived. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had, uh, you got to spend like three days, I think, with your dad mm -hmm. in Southern California. And he has this rural place up in the hills. And you decide, well, uh, I've got this friend in Pasadena. I'd like to visit this friend. And so your dad goes there with you. And, and you get to see your daughter. And you're wondering, Oh my gosh! What's my daughter going to think? Is she going to remember me? And it was it was very touching, your reunion with your daughter. I'm kind of speeding fast because there's a point soon after that that I, as a reader, I gasped. So I don't want to spoil that for readers because I think they'll love reading all of your experiences in Greece and also what happens when you get back. But I'm going to save that for people to read your book. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Helen. It's been okay. wonderful. You've made me feel so at home. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you drove down hours from your high <laughs> desert abode here in Northern California. Yeah. So I remind uh, listeners that the author of this memoir is Helen Valborg. The name of her book is Odyssey to My Daughter. Now we're presenting a new segment here on Nancy's Bookshelf that we're calling The Writer's Room, where we're featuring short segments by North State authors. Hello, Liz. Again today, Liz came to play, a sneaking peek as is her way. From neath the deck, each day round ten, she preens and winks, is gone again below the boards where life is cool and still. I imagine her queen, her benevolent rule, her reptile lounge, a dew-filled pool with bugs replete, her subjects bow at her feet. And yet each day it's only she who sneaks and peeks and looks at me squarely in the eyes. Such a sweet surprise. Alone, too, I stare back, thinking, what does she sense? Does she have any inkling about this creature from the world of man, this clawless giant whose skin is tan, who looks out each day to find her? They say the reptilian brain's confined to low-sense input. There is no mind, no family, no language, no sense of play. And yet, here's my Liz again today. It's ten, I swear, each time we meet. I wait. She comes so small, so neat. She leans, she preens, she sees me there. She darts down, then returns with regal air and meets my eyes once more. We'd chat if we could, but what would we say? Do you eat bugs? I reply, no way. You have no hair. Well, that's my genus. Or such like that. There's not much between us that should make us friends. But I'm here to tell you it's still sweet this way. And I look out tomorrow, as today, at 10 in the morning. 
hoping to play hide-and-seek till our little game ends. This is Sybil Hunt. Doing bleak well. Hard to tell who is the imposter. The waiter who smiles as he pours wine says yum as a benediction and thanks his customers for their largesse. Or the poet, armed with a hacksaw, who carves away the excesses of obese paragraphs until all that remains are the true fiber and the lean elegance of an idea daring to walk upright. More likely, I am a double agent, the obedient dork spouting culinary adjectives and the fey assassin slaying all gargantuan words. Both thriving in their milieu because one savors the orgasmic sound of diners satisfied and the other loves the dying screams of bloated syllables skewered by the icy blade of grammar. We share a bed, we dine together, we worship cats, redheads, Tashira Mufuni, and Cormac McCarthy. Perhaps there are two hearts beating inside this maze. One thunders tableside and applauds the unveiling of tiramisu, then goes dormant when the candles are extinguished. The other heart arises like the lord of the undead and commands the pruning of all garish adverbs, the end of acrobatic nonsense, the demise of dictionary bouquets. And this is Robert Chancy. For more information on the writers you've just heard, go to mynspr.org and click on the poetry link. Former Chico News and Review columnist Anthony Peyton Porter has a poem for us today. This is Inside Outside from Hal Sirowitz. My engagement to your mother was as enjoyable, father said, as sticking a finger in a cake and licking off the icing. Marriage is like cutting the cake and discovering the inside has nothing to do with the outside. That was Inside Outside from Hal Sirowitz. to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.